Father, we long for your kingdom to come and your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Lord, it is abundantly clear as we look around and as we experience life that, that we are so far from that. That so many things happen that cause us to cry out, come Lord Jesus. We long for the day when all will be made right and we will be with you forever and ever and ever in joy unending. We pray, Lord, that as we hear your word from Ecclesiastes, that you would give us a taste of that joy unending, even as we look at a hard subject, even as we think about the world, not as it ought to be, but as it is and how to live rightly within that world. Would you help us respond to the message of the preacher with joy? Would you help us respond to the message of the preacher with faith? And would you feed our hungry souls that desperately need your word? We pray that you would do what only you can do by your Holy Spirit in the hearts of each and every person listening this morning, including me as I listen to your word. Would you help me as I preach it to be faithful? We pray that you would do these things for our good and our joy and ultimately for the glory of King Jesus. Amen. Amen, friends. If you've got a Bible with or your scripture journal, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you've got one of those sheets, you've also got the text right in front of you. Praise the Lord. Our sermon text for this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 to 29. We will read that shortly, but before we do, I want to talk about something that happened five years ago. On July 31st, 2016, a family was traveling from Minnesota to Colorado on their way to receive one last training before they headed off as missionaries in Japan with World Venture. They were actually going to be missionaries working with uh, Nicole's cousin, Mary Jo, and her husband, William, in Japan, and they had sold everything they had and were prepared to go, had permission to go, had enough funding, and they were on their way to this last training when a distracted semi-truck driver ran through the construction zone and crashed into their car and killed all of them. This was the Pals family who you might have heard from or heard about from the Murins story when Will came and shared about their call to Ireland. This was a big factor in that. This family dying. Jameson and his wife, Catherine, who were 29. Ezra, their son, who was three years old. Their daughter, Violet, who was just over two. And their son, Calvin, who was only two months old. All perished in this tragic car crash. They never made it to Colorado and certainly never made it to Japan. They perished in their righteousness. In their following the call of God on their life. At the same time that Jameson and his family were burning to death in the car, sitting in a Mexican prison was Joaquin Guzman, better known as El Chapo, the head of the Sinaloa drug cartel. He was 59 at the time, twice as old as these guys. And he had lived a life of utter wickedness, murdering, ensuring that drugs get into countries and cause countless damage, extorting and pursuing other kinds of wickedness. He was in custody in Mexico awaiting extradition to the United States, which he was eventually extradited, which means he was taken from Mexico and moved to the United States to face trial. He was tried and found guilty. And guess where he was imprisoned and is still living in prison, in the maximum security prison in Colorado. Why did El Chapo make it to Colorado and the Pals didn't? Why did Jameson and his family perish in the midst of their righteousness and yet El Chapo continues to live in spite of his wickedness? This isn't fair. It doesn't make sense. It's not right. And yet that's the reality of life under the sun. The preacher sees what we see, that life under the sun often doesn't seem to make sense. 
life under the sun or life in the ruins of Eden doesn't seem to be fair. We have an innate sense that this isn't right, that the pals should have lived and that El Chapo should have died for his crimes. And yet we see that it's not the case. The preacher says in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15, In my vain life I have seen everything. He says, There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. He looks out on this earth where things don't seem to make sense and don't seem to be fair, and he says, You know what? This is hevel, this is vanity. This is like we talked about when we started Ecclesiastes, frustratingly mysterious. Why, God, is it this way? He has an innate sense that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And that's not just from an internal sense of fairness. That's actually from the way God talks about life with his people. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30 As Moses is talking to his people. Starting in verse 15, he says this. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules. Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. This is the word of the Lord. This is what he told his people. This is attested all throughout the scriptures, especially in Proverbs, that righteousness leads to life and wickedness leads to death. And yet here we are. The righteous man dies in his righteousness and the wicked prolongs his life in evil doing. This is not the way it's supposed to be. How do we live in a world like this? That's the question that the preacher wants to answer for us this morning. Notice as we go through the text that the preacher does not tell us why the righteous man perished. He doesn't explain to us why Jameson and Catherine and their kids died and why El Chapo is still living. He doesn't explain this to us. His focus is not on this why. There are reasons why. And there are compelling ways to think about from the scriptures why. But that's not the preacher's focus this morning. His focus is not on the why. His focus is on the how then do we live. All through this text in Ecclesiastes, the preacher is taking life as it comes to us and asking, what does wise living look like in light of that? So he's taking this fact that the righteous man perished in his righteousness and the wicked man prolonged his life in evil doing. And he's asking, how do we live wisely now under the sun in light of this? In light of those things, let's read the text and see what he says. And then we'll talk about how we're going to break it up this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting again in verse 15, all the way to verse 29. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous. And do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who were in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 
Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off, that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. As we look at this text this morning, this is a particularly challenging text to see on an initial reading. How does all of this fit together? What is the preacher getting at? What is he driving at? What's his point? To help us think through this text this morning, we're going to divide it up, our discussion of it up into three do's. Excuse me, three don'ts and a do. Three don'ts and a do. That's all going to be found in verses 16 to 18. The preacher's main response to the reality that life under the sun often doesn't make sense is found in verses 16 to 18. And then in verses 19 to 29, what he's doing is he's describing and unpacking and elaborating on this idea of How do we respond to life under the sun? So we're going to start in verse 17. We're going to start in verse 17. The preacher writes this. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? We're starting here because the connection is easiest to see. Given verse 15, that the righteous man dies and the wicked man lives. And that doesn't make sense. The preacher says, be not overly wicked. Don't respond to that reality by giving up and embracing sin. In other words, if you see that regardless of your righteousness, you may perish in that righteousness. You may come to the conclusion that it doesn't really matter what we do. If the righteous perish anyway, and the wicked live long, why should I try to be righteous? Why should I put in effort to be godly if there's no reward? Some of us might see this circumstance and respond by saying, well, if it doesn't matter anyway, if it's just a coin flip, whether I perish or not, then I'm going to respond with YOLO. You only live once. And I'm going to try to squeeze all of the enjoyment out of life that I can. And when we think in a worldly way about life, the way we squeeze all the enjoyment that we can out of it is by responding and embracing wickedness and sin. This is what Billy Joel argues in his song, Only the Good Die Young. He says, they say there's a heaven for those who await. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. You know that the only the good die young. He says that, and that embodies the very nature of our culture's reaction. If there is no payoff for righteousness, why be righteous? Instead, embrace life, which often means embracing sin in their mind. But the preacher says, no, don't do that. When life under the sun does not make sense, don't give up and embrace sin. Why? Verse 17, he says, right? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Embracing wickedness and embracing foolishness will hasten your demise. In other words, is what the preacher says. Right? If you throw yourself headlong into sin, into wickedness, into evil doing, into foolishness, you will probably die a premature death. 
For every El Chapo rotting away in a prison, there's a Pablo Escobar who was hunted down and killed at the age of 44 by the police for all of his heinous crimes. There's countless men and women that are killed because of their participation in wickedness. You will die prematurely if you embrace and throw your heart into wickedness. Think of biblical examples like Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16. Number 16, Moses is leading his people through the wilderness. And Korah, another, another person in the congregation, gathers this group around him and says, Hey, who put you in charge? They're rebelling against God and his assigned authority. And what God does in response is he says, Hey, separate yourself from Korah and his people and their wickedness. Because I'm going to act. And what does he do? He opens up the ground and swallows them all. And the scriptures say they went, they went down alive, down into Sheol. It was a horrible death that they received because they embraced wickedness. When life didn't make sense, when wandering through the desert didn't make sense to them, they said, "Why?" Moses is just leading us in circles. They embraced wickedness instead of trusting the Lord. And they were killed because of it. They were, died a premature death before their time. Friends, the preacher is trying to tell us don't respond to the vanity of the world we see around us by increasing our wickedness. Now, he's not saying when he says don't be overly wicked, he's not saying be a little wicked. That's okay, right? He's not trying to encourage that in you like as long as you stay below this wickedness threshold, you're good. What he's doing is he's talking in realistic terms, recognizing what he says later in verse 20, right? Verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Paul picks this up in Romans when he says that no one is without sin. The preacher is recognizing that and he's saying not don't be a little wicked, or he's saying not, don't, not be a little wicked. He's saying don't embrace wickedness. Don't embrace sin as a result of this frustratingly mysterious world we live in. Indeed, it is only because of the patience of God himself that all wickedness is not consumed. Right? We are all, if there is not one person who has not sinned, as the preacher says, one, one righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The reality is that all of us deserve destruction. But Paul says that God responds with patience as he does so that we would learn to repent. Romans 2, he says this. Romans 2, verses 3 to 5. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is the key. God is patient with us to lead us to repentance, not so that we can conclude that none of it matters and that we should just embrace sin. The fact that El Chapo is still alive is actually God's patience with him, calling him to repentance. And if he does and trusts in Jesus, he will receive forgiveness, just as all of us have. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So don't embrace sin. Don't give up and embrace sin as a result of this heavy life. Initially, when I was thinking about this exhortation of the preacher and thinking, how how can we think about how that applies to us in just our daily life? I was thinking, well, you know, I don't think most of us are tempted to just look at life and the frustrations of life and wholeheartedly embrace sin and reject God. Most of us in the church probably aren't tempted that way. And so I was thinking, well, this is probably a pretty easy one and we can move on from that. But just a minute. I think that most of us are tempted, like I am, to respond to the frustrations of a world that doesn't make sense with justifying a little wickedness, a little sin. What I mean by that is when, when I encounter circumstances where this world does not make sense and it's frustrating and the righteous seem to 
seem to be punished and the wicked seem to prosper. Then I'm tempted to respond to that by trying to comfort myself with, with a little bit of wickedness. Maybe it's okay if I'm not, if I, if I waste time and am unfaithful with the time I've been given. Maybe, maybe it's okay if I overindulge a little bit with food or TV or something that's not inherently bad. But when I treat it like something that I'm finding my comfort and security in, it turns bad. Or maybe I'm tempted to justify just a little bit my anger or my shortness. Right? Those little kind of ways that we respond to a world that's frustrating with frustration and then justify it. I think that's what the preacher is talking about too. Not just a wholehearted embrace of wickedness. But a looking at this world and saying, you know what, it is frustratingly mysterious and I don't get it. And then saying, you know what, because I don't get it and I'm frustrated, it's okay for me to be a little wicked. God, God understands. He gets it. We justify and we minimize and things like that. And the preacher is saying, don't respond by any escalation of sin. Don't respond by any escalation of wickedness. But instead, fear the Lord, as we'll see later. That's the first don't. When life under the sun doesn't make sense, don't give up and embrace sin, friends. He moves on from there. It's a little easier to see that one than it is to see the other ones. He says in verse 16, Be not overly righteous. We're going to stop there for that one. Be not overly righteous. You might be asking yourself, and you should when you first read this, like, isn't righteousness good? I mean, if we, if we think of righteousness as always doing what God says is right, isn't that good? Shouldn't we want more and more and more of that? The answer would typically be yes, but the preacher is telling us something about how we think about righteousness in this case, and it, the key is in his word overly, Right? Verse 16, be not overly righteous. Think about the connection with verse 15. If the world is not making sense because the righteous die young and the wicked prosper in their wickedness even. They continue and extend in their evil doing. Why would someone respond to that circumstance with being overly righteous? If the world is not making sense and the righteous are dying in their righteousness, why respond with being overly righteous? I think the answer is that we respond with being overly righteous because we think maybe they weren't quite righteous enough. Maybe they did something to make God angry with them. Maybe they lacked faith in a way that they should have had faith. They must have done something wrong to die in their righteousness. And so we say, you know what? I'm not going to do that thing wrong. I'm going to get it right. I'm going to, I'm going to fix whatever problem they had so that I don't die in my righteousness too. I'll do better than them. I'll try harder than them. You may think that that doesn't make sense, but this is incredibly common thinking. Think about John 9. Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they come across this man born blind. And what did his disciples ask him? They say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's thinking like he did some, someone did something wrong that this man who doesn't deserve to be born blind was born blind. And Jesus says, no, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be shown in him. In other words, there is a different reason. But we think along these transactional lines that say, if something bad happened to someone good, it's probably because they did something bad. That's how Job's friends think, right? Job, confess confess your sin. Clearly, you have been wrong because God is punishing you. And yet that wasn't the case with Job either. The preacher is saying, don't think like that and respond like that when the world doesn't make sense. He's saying in verse 16, when he says, be not overly righteous, he's saying that when life under the sun doesn't make sense, don't try harder to earn God's favor. Don't try harder to earn God's favor. Don't be overly righteous. Don't respond with trying to make up for whatever was lacking 
and the other person who died in their righteousness. He says, don't do this because we can't do enough to do it. The problem is that no amount of trying harder will cause us to be righteous enough to make God owe us something. No amount of trying harder will cause us to be righteous enough to tip the scales of fate in our favor to where God says, you know what? Yep, I guess I have to be, I have to let them slide. No amount of being righteous will work, the preacher says, because of what he says in verse 20, right? Verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And he gives an example for us in verses 21 and 22. He says, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Right? Just picture the hearing a servant and he's, he's talking bad about you behind your back and you get upset. The preacher says, not so fast. Verse 22, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans when he says, you, you who judge others, do you judge yourself? You do the same very things. There is no one that is righteous enough to tip the scales in their favor. There's no one righteous enough to earn God's favor. Jesus says, even in Matthew 5, 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, who were the overly righteous of their day, unless your righteousness is higher than that, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. We talked last week in the New City Catechism, question seven, about what the law of God requires, right? Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. There is none of us who can do enough so that we can guarantee that God could owe us and we would never die in our righteousness. That's the reality that we face. The preacher says, trying to do this will destroy you. Right? Verse 16 again. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Why should you destroy yourself? How would trying to be overly righteous or trying to be super righteous destroy you? If you're trying for a goal that you can never, ever reach, and you're putting your hope in doing something that you can never, ever do, that will crush you. Trying to earn God's favor by your own actions, which you cannot do, will crush you, will destroy you. The preacher says, be not overly righteous. Don't destroy yourself. The good news of the gospel is that we don't have to. Right? The good news of the gospel is that we don't have to work for our righteousness. But we get what, the Bible, what, what, what is called an imputed righteousness. An imputed righteousness, which means that God takes Jesus' righteousness, his good doing, his always doing what God said is right. He takes Jesus' righteousness and he treats us like we're the ones who did that. He treats us as if we always do what is right through Jesus. This is the gift that God gives his people, this imputed righteousness. Paul talks about it in Titus 3. He puts it this way in Titus 3 verses 4 to 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the work that God has done in Christ Jesus. That the righteousness of Christ is counted as ours. And so we do not respond to a frustratingly mysterious world by trying to be overly righteous by trying to be righteous apart from christ by trying to do enough we don't even respond by saying yes i know jesus righteousness makes me right with god and reconciles me but now i'm going to add to it right we do this so easily in the church it's going to be jesus plus i know i'm saved i know god hasn't forgotten that but 
man, I've been doing really good this week. And so God's probably going to favor me just a little bit more. I'm, I'm just a little bit better off than those who haven't been doing good following Jesus this week. That's not how it works, friends. We're tempted to think that way, though. We're tempted to take the righteousness that God gives as a gift and try to add to that gift and try to use it to secure our own gain. Can't do that. We are being overly righteous when we act like the Pharisee in the parable in Luke 18 that we read during the worship service. That Pharisee who looks and says, thank you, God, that I am not like those other people. That Pharisee who thinks, I, I, I tithe regularly. I, I am at the temple serving. I read the Torah. All these things that I do that are my righteousness, I thank you, God, that I am not like that tax collector. We do this when we think about what happens to us and we say, why God, me and not them? Why God, did, did I get sick and not my wicked neighbor who I know hates you? Why God, did I lose my job and not my wicked coworker who I know rebels against you? When we think like this, friends, we are trying to respond to the frustratingly mysterious nature of life under the sun by being overly righteous. The preacher says, don't do that. It will destroy you. Because you'll think, maybe I just didn't do good enough this time. Maybe I need to do better next time. And that's not how God's favor works. That's not how God's righteousness works. Asking these questions reveals a heart that is trying harder to earn God's favor. And the preacher says, don't. You don't have to. And try, if you will, you will destroy yourself. He moves on from being overly righteous to the third don't. Verse 16, be not overly righteous. That's the second don't. The third one, do not make yourself too wise. Do not make yourself too wise. Again, we ask, isn't wisdom good? Like the preacher seems kind of pro-wisdom in his book in Ecclesiastes. Isn't wisdom good? Shouldn't we try to be more wise? Again, the key is thinking about that word overly and thinking about how this response connects to verse 15. Remember, verse 15, the man who dies perishes in his righteousness and the wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Life under the sun not making sense. Why would you respond to that? By trying to be overly wise. What would you be trying to gain if you responded to the frustrating nature of this life by seeking more wisdom? I think the key is that you're thinking in terms of If I could just see the whole picture, then it would make sense to me. If I could just see how this thing that happened to me fits into God's plan, then I would trust him. If I could just know what is best to do in this circumstance, then my future will be bright. We think along those lines and we try to use wisdom to secure our future. The preacher is saying, when life under the sun doesn't make sense, don't respond. Don't insist on understanding everything. Don't insist on understanding everything. That's what he means when he says, be not overly wise. Be not too wise. Don't insist on trying to understand everything. The preacher says that wisdom is good, right? Verses 19 and 20. Wisdom, he says, gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. He is pro-wisdom, but he follows that right after that. In verse 20, by saying, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. In other words, wisdom is good and gives us strength, but wisdom is limited because we are sinners. Wisdom is limited by our lack of righteousness. Wisdom is good but limited And complete understanding, the preacher says, is ultimately beyond us. Verses 23 to 24. He says, all of this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Complete understanding is beyond us, the preacher says, because only the God knows the depths 
of the whole picture of creation. Job 28 talks about it this way. Job 28 verses 20 to 24. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living. And concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it. And he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. God's vision is so expansive. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He is all-seeing. He is able to understand everything. And so, in him are all the fountains of wisdom. But us, outside, are limited in our understanding. It is far from us, deep and very deep, to try to understand the whole picture. It's like when we're putting together a puzzle. We like to do puzzles. And one of the things you do when you open a puzzle, right, is you you dump out the pieces and you flip them all over so they're on the picture side. And then you take either the cover of the puzzle or lately they've been including like a big picture of it that you can unfold. And you have a reference to look at and to say, this is how it's supposed to look. So when you look at these tiny pieces that have little fragments of color on them, you can kind of guess where they go and start putting the pieces together. But imagine trying to do that puzzle without any picture of what it's supposed to look like. And imagine trying to do that puzzle without knowing if you've got all the pieces. And imagine trying to do that puzzle if you don't know how many pieces there are in the whole puzzle. Because you don't have a box for it. And someone comes along and dumps another garbage pail full of pieces on your table. Frustrating. Mysterious. Vexing, as the preacher says. In Ecclesiastes 1.18, in much wisdom is much vexation. Only God knows all the pieces. Only God knows the picture that all the pieces together, when locked in their place, make. It is a good and beautiful picture, but we don't know it. Seeing the whole thing is beyond what God has been willing to show us for our good. When we search for wisdom in a way that is trying to control and understand everything under the sun, we're left with many frustrations. This is what the preacher does. I'm so grateful that throughout Ecclesiastes, the preacher makes the mistakes so we don't have to, right? He's doing that again in verse 25. He had just said, do not make yourself too wise. And so what does he do in verse 25? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. He's trying to grasp all of it. When he says the scheme of things, this is another way of describing a plan. He's trying to see what this master plan is. What does he find when he does so? He finds a couple things. Verse 25, the first thing he finds. I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. You might say, what? A woman whose hands are snared. What is he talking about? If you look carefully at verse 26, you'll notice the article the before woman. The word the. That's important. That's important because he's describing a particular woman whose hands, he says, are, or whose heart, excuse me, is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. If we take Solomon as the one preaching to us, which I believe is faithful to the text, Then we think about what else Solomon has taught and where else he's used women to describe something. We're drawn to the book of Proverbs, particularly chapter 7, where he describes wisdom as a woman calling out for people to come and benefit from learning wisdom. And he describes this other woman who he describes as an adulteress and foolish people are drawn to her. It's not just about adultery, friends. It's about so much more. It's about wisdom versus folly, foolishness, wickedness. The woman who is calling out and tempting those foolish sinners to come and indulge themselves with her is Lady Folly. And the preacher says when he searches out for wisdom, what he finds is that foolishness 
Lady Folly is so much easier to find. She's right there and ready to trap you. When you search out for wisdom, it is much easier to find foolishness. That's the first thing he finds. Second thing he finds, verses 27 to the first part of 28. Behold, this is what I found, he says. This is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. So he says, actually, here's what I found. I couldn't find something. When he says, I'm adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, he's saying, I'm trying to put these pieces into place. I'm gathering more and more data, more and more information about the way the world works and what things look like in this world. And I'm trying to add them all up into a picture, the scheme of things. And what happens? Verse 28, even though my soul has sought it repeatedly, I have not found it. I have not found it. The preacher finds that more and more data is never enough data to understand the master plan, to understand the whole picture. Knowing more is not the solution, in other words. What does he find? The third thing. Verse 28, the second half, he says, One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. This is probably one of the weirdest and most difficult to interpret parts of this passage. Is the preacher talking about men versus women and saying men are more wise or more righteous than women are? What is he saying? This verse is challenging for us. One of the reasons it is, is because we expect it to be more equitable than one man out of a thousand and no woman, right? That, that offends our sensibilities. We're like, that's not right. And that's the preacher's point. He's not making a statement about men versus women. In the same way that he's using the woman in verse 26 to talk about the lady folly, he's making a statement about the presence or lack of wisdom. He's using what's called hyperbole. He's using an over-exaggeration to describe this, just like he is in verse 15 when he says, in my vain life, I've seen everything. Obviously, the preacher had not seen everything, right? He's not making a numerical statement about men versus women by saying one in a thousand is pretty decent for guys and there's no one decent for girls. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that wisdom is more elusive than we expect. Wisdom is more elusive than we expect. We expect that the rate of the preacher finding men and women would be somewhat equitable and that there would be more than one out of a thousand even. But that's not what the case is. It is rare and elusive. The preacher is again hammering home this point that you search for it and search for it and it is too deep to find out. And he brings it home when he says in verse 29, see this alone I found, the fourth thing that he finds, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. What he finds is that the problem is not with God and with the creation that he has made. God made man upright. The problem is with man who seeks out many schemes, who seeks out many schemes. And if you remember this word schemes, the preacher repeats it three times, right? Verse 25, he's trying to find the scheme of things. Verse 27, he's adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. And here now he says in verse 29, man has sought out many schemes. The preacher is trying to understand the plan, the scheme of things, the master plan, and he's finding out instead that mankind seeks out many plans of their own, many schemes. This is the problem. The problem isn't the pursuit of righteousness or the pursuit of wisdom. The problem is pursuing righteousness and wisdom for wrong reasons. To exert control on our life. To try to be our own God. To try to secure our own future. Pursuing good things for the wrong reasons as we scheme away. See, we scheme to try to make this master plan into our own image. We try to wring the most enjoyment from our life because we don't really trust that following God will bring true joy. So we embrace wickedness and we try to wring out that enjoyment, scheming away as we do. 
or we scheme by trying to get on God's good side through pursuing our own righteousness. We scheme about ways we can make God more impressed with us so that he's more likely to answer our requests. This is no different from how the pagans treat their gods as beings to be manipulated for their favor. Or we scheme to try to get control of life by being overly wise. We try to add all the pieces together and know the right thing to do always and think that that will lead to happiness. Friends, the preacher is calling us when life doesn't make sense because it's lived under the sun in a broken world, broken by sin. When it doesn't make sense, we are to stop scheming. And instead, we're to learn to fear God. That's what the preacher is getting at in verse 18. Stop your scheming and learn to fear God. Verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The question is, what is this? And what is that? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand. This is the preacher's wisdom that he shared in verses 16 and 17. Right? Don't respond by being overly righteous. Don't try to make yourself too wise. Don't be overly wicked. Don't be foolish. Take hold of these things. Learn to fear God because it's the one who fears God that will come out from both of them. Fearing God is responding to God rightly. We have awe for him and we have deep respect for him. And what that results in is our ability to completely trust him. We learn to fear God as we learn to trust him. How can we do that when the world doesn't make sense? How can we trust God when he says... That if you pursue righteousness, it will lead to life. And if you pursue wickedness, it will lead to death. How can we trust a God who says that? And then we see this world and that's not the way it works. The answer is to look back at what the preacher said initially he saw in verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. The preacher is talking about someone there, although he doesn't know it yet. He's talking about the man who perished in his righteousness, the man Jesus Christ. There is a man who perishes in his righteousness before his time while wicked and evildoers look on and live. That man is Jesus Christ. The ultimate righteous man. See, the cross does not make sense. When we look at the world and we see this and we say, you know what, that doesn't make sense. The prime example of that is the cross. It does not make sense that a righteous man should die. That a holy, perfect man should die. It does not make sense that God would send his son not as a conqueror riding a war horse, but as a humble servant riding a donkey and offering peace. It doesn't make sense. The cross, as Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Jesus was completely righteous and yet he died. He was wisdom in the flesh. And yet he died. And Paul says this is according to the wisdom of God. Listen to how he talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 20 to 31. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God is turning the wisdom of the world up on its end. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks. Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. 
The weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, friends, Jesus, the one who is perfectly righteous and perfectly wise, came and died, a death that didn't make sense, so that he could be to you and I the source of our righteousness, the source of our wisdom, so that as he rose from the dead, and as we're joined with him in that resurrection, we too might have new life. All who believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. We learn to fear God, even though the world doesn't make sense, and even though it seems contradictory sometimes to what God says about how it should work. We learn to fear God by trusting the one who gave his own son, by trusting him that in the thing that most did not make sense, he was actually accomplishing something tremendously beautiful. That's true for the cross of Christ. That's true for us. Because Jesus has died and risen. Then promises like Proverbs 10:28 are always true. The hope of the righteous brings joy. But the expectation of the wicked will perish. That's true for everyone who's in Christ Jesus. That's true for you, that's true for me, that's true for Jameson and Catherine, and that's true for Ezra And for Violet and for Calvin. In Christ, the Pals family has joy forevermore. Even though from our perspective, their death did not make sense. They have joy forevermore. Not because they schemed to get it. But because they trusted in Christ. And he is faithful. And you and I can too. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you as the one who always did what your father said was right. Who trusted him in all circumstances. Who lived a life of perfect wisdom and righteousness. We praise you as the one who died the death we deserved. And we praise you, Jesus, as the one who sent your spirit to help us learn to trust your Father like you did. So we pray that you would help us. We pray, Spirit, that you would work in us to help us respond, not by scheming to try to get what we think we need, but respond with fear and trust in the Lord. Would you help us even now, as we come to your table, would you strengthen this resolve? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.